Our brief ultimately is that we're an investigative program. All our stories need to have an investigative edge. So the ones we love the most are those classic ball-breaking, award-winning investigations that Four Corners is famous for. But, you know, we do a whole range of stories and we really try and mix it up. So we do reporterless stories, we do social documentaries, we do actuality-led, um, fly-on-the-wall, op-doc, style of stories so we try and be unpredictable um, but you know every story we do ideally it has to be new or there has to be something new about it there's got to be a really strong public interest reason for doing it we're not there for infotainment although we do try and make our stories entertaining and super watchable yep. but you know there has to be a reason for doing it that's sally neighbor talking about her job as the executive producer of the ABC's Four Corners program. Hi, I'm Bill Birnbauer, the CEO of Democracy's Watchdogs. Sally was a great reporter, but I think any journalist would give their eye teeth to have worked with her when she was running Four Corners. It's one of the toughest gigs in Australian journalism. Producing 30 long-form investigative stories for television each year is incredibly challenging. Not only did Sally have to find and approve the right story idea, she had to oversee its research and production, then ensure that the story was legally and factually bulletproof. And she did that for seven years before recently retiring. In this interview, Sally also recalls reporting on the 2002 Bali bombings, where she arrived on the scene a day after three bombs were detonated, killing 202 people including 88 from Australia. Some of what she then witnessed still cuts deep. Forever curious, Sally tried to understand in her reporting how it was that several Australians had become so radicalised that they joined Islamist terror groups. I hope you enjoy listening to my interview with Sally Neighbour. Bye for now. Australia's single worst loss of life since World War II. The reaction among Australians and Indonesians was shock. But for those who followed the recent history of terrorism, it was not a complete surprise. According to the intelligence reports of his interrogation, Al Farouk was sent to Indonesia by Osama bin Laden's operations chief. His role here was to take over local Islamic militant groups and, quote, um, we have a staff of about 20, just over 20 journalists, producers, reporters, researchers, uh, digital journalists. And so my job is to manage all those people and commission the stories. So that's the kind of the key role, commissioning the stories. Um, so that involves, you know, constant discussion with people about story ideas, um, talking to my own sources, you know, digging up my own, my own information. But, you know, our journalists, all of them are constantly coming up with story ideas. So, 
you know, my job is to decide which ones meet the bar, which ones we should do, which ones we don't do, how we do them. We have pretty intensive discussions around, you know, how we're doing a story, why we're doing a story, you know, what the purpose is, what we're going to be able to say that's new. Um, and then, you know, shepherding the stories through to getting to where. So we have a, a, a quite kind of rigorous, rigid process whereby we have um, a rough cut and a fine cut of a story and we rework them and rework them and rework them until um, ideally they're perfect. They're seldom perfect, but, you know, yep. we often get them pretty good. So what do you look for in a four-corner story? Look, I mean, our brief ultimately is that we're an investigative program. All our stories need to have an investigative edge. So the ones we love the most are those classic ball-breaking, award-winning investigations that Four Corners is famous for. But, you know, we do a whole range of stories and we really try and mix it up. So we do reporterless stories, we do social documentaries, we do actuality-led, um, fly-on-the-wall, op-doc style of stories. So we try and be unpredictable. Um, but, you know, every story we do, ideally, it has to be new or there has to be something new about it. There's got to be a really strong public interest reason for doing it. We're not there for infotainment, although we do try and make our stories entertaining and super watchable. Yep. But, you know, there has to be a reason for doing it. And what kind of impact are you looking for? Well, look, you know, we love to cause royal commissions and we've caused, I think, four or five of those just in the last few years. So that's always satisfying. But, uh, but you know, most stories don't lead to a royal commission. So we're trying to shed a light on, you know, issues or scandals or problems or, you know, human tragedies or social, political issues that aren't getting covered. So we're trying to really, you know, shine a light on stories that wouldn't otherwise be told. And, you know, our aim is to make people sit up and pay attention to that. And that includes, you know, politicians, public policy makers, um, all sorts of people. So, so we want to, whilst we don't see ourselves as change agents, you know, if we feel there's, you know, an injustice or corruption, then, you know, we want to make stories that cause that to change. And what's the average time? They obviously vary, but that reporters have, researchers have, producers mm. to actually get a story to air? Yeah, so the average story cycle at Four Corners is nine weeks. So that involves three weeks of research, which will be the reporter, producer and researcher working together, then three weeks of production, three weeks of post-production. Um, in that first three weeks of research, they might trawl through, you know, five or six different story ideas and kind of discard them one by one and, you know, ultimately the best one is the one that gets made. Um, sometimes we'll start on a story and it just doesn't quite stack up or they come across something better or different. Um, but on average, nine weeks is the amount of time, sometimes longer, sometimes much shorter. Um, you know, the stories that we did on the New Zealand, the Christchurch shooting or the Thai cave res rescue, we turn them around much more quickly in a week or two weeks. And what's the failure rate? We usually, we almost always are able to reach that decision before we start shooting a story because we do really intensive research and have really intensive discussions about does this story stack up? What's it saying? Are we absolutely sure? We need to have done really pretty much all the research before we even start shooting. So, I mean, you know, we will start on and discard dozens of stories in a year. I think probably out of all the stories we would look at in a year, probably 
maybe 20% of them at most, actually get made. But generally, we're able to, you know, figure out if the story meets the bar before we get too far into making it. And how do you protect whistleblowers? Well, you know, journalists have all sorts of measures for protecting whistleblowers and, you know, it's become much, much more critical for journalists to do that because, as we know, the protections for whistleblowers in this country are terrible and whistleblowers are routinely pursued by governments and agencies and punished, as we've seen recently in a whole series of cases. So it's incumbent upon us to protect our sources. So, you know, at Four Corners, we've only just recently introduced um, a secure drop system of having people get in contact with us so they can't be traced. Journalists are very careful now, much more so than in the past, about what records they keep of stories that they do, how they record and store people's addresses, phone numbers. Journalists have gone back to, um, you know, there's a lot more old-fashioned just going and meeting people than there was, say, five, ten years ago because, you know, those um, personal face-to-face meetings are much less able to be traced than, um, you know, electronic communications. So, um, you know, there's so journalists are having to be much more careful these days and much more protective of the people who we rely on because, you know, if whistleblowers can't trust us to protect them and if they don't get protected then they're not going to tell their stories. As executive producer, do you feel pressure to come up with kind of the big one week in, week out? One of my predecessors as EP at Four Corners used to say he felt like he was walking around carrying a Ming vase the whole time and he was terrified of dropping it. I don't feel quite like that, but, you know, I am ever mindful that it's up to me to a large degree and the amazing team I work with to uphold this incredible tradition of great journalism. And therefore, you can't get it wrong and you can't do stories that aren't good enough. You really can't make mistakes. Um, So we just have to, all of our stories have to be bulletproof, really, because, you know, the defamation laws in this country are shocking and totally stacked against journalists. So you have to make your story legally bulletproof, factually bulletproof. And so that, to me, is the greatest responsibility that I have, that I share with our journalists. And how much time do you spend with the lawyers looking at stories? Um, Some stories, the difficult legal stories, we'll have several meetings with the lawyers, so we'll spend hours and hours with the lawyers. Sometimes the legal discussion will go on for several hours. When we made the story that we made last year on the ABC, the internal turmoil in the ABC, I think the session with the lawyers went for about six hours. Um, And then we'll do it all again the week after. So it's pretty intensive. And that's what you have to do to make your stories bulletproof. And how many stories do you do each year? So our program has a 40 week um, season. Uh, We make 30 stories and we run 10 stories that are brought in from overseas. So our cycle tends to be three stories and then a brought in program. So you know, our key role is the making of those 30 stories and um, the ones that we buy in just give us a little bit of breathing space in between. As a reporter, you specialised in Islamic terrorism. Um, what drew you to that? So I started reporting on Islamic terrorism in 2002, the year of the Bali bombings. And in fact, we were working on a story on Jamar Islamiyah, the Indonesian Islamist group, um, 
about three months before the bombing happened. And at that point, um, people weren't even necessarily convinced that this group um, existed or that it posed a threat to public safety. So we had set out to go and investigate the reports that were steadily emerging about this group and its leader, the Indonesian cleric Abu Bakar Bashir. So we were, we'd been in Malaysia and we were on our way to Indonesia as part of this story when I was at um, KL Airport, I think, and got a phone call from my EP saying there's been a bombing in Bali. We were on our way to Jakarta and we diverted to Bali and got there um, the night after the bombing. So, um, you know, we were among the first journalists there, actually. What did you see at the site? What I remember most clearly, we couldn't get, we couldn't drive right to the site because the streets were closed. And what I remember most clearly is that we had to park, I think about a kilometre away, and there was absolute silence. And so we had all our camera gear and all our staff and we were crunching our way up the street to the bombing site and crunching our way because there was just glass underfoot for hundreds of, kil uh, hundreds of metres around. But there was no sound and that was the most eerie thing about it. And that was because basically there were hardly any survivors. And then when we got to the scene, there was no sign of life. I'd expected to be this massive rescue operation underway, ambulances, you know, rescue crews, people digging through the rubble, and there was nothing. And the reason for that was that hardly anyone had survived and the few who had were already in hospital. Um, so the next thing we did was head off to the hospital and the scenes there were pretty crazy. Um, and people in shock wandering around looking for, you know, their friends or loved ones. I remember meeting a guy from the Coogee Dolphins football team who had been there with his mates celebrating, you know, the end of season. And um, it turned out that I think six or eight of his mates died that night. And when I met him, uh, he was kind of wandering around in a daze, didn't know where they were. And um, there were bodies lined up in the corridors under white sheets and there was one room that we walked past and just kind of briefly glanced into in which there were severed limbs. So, um, yes, that was all pretty intense. How did that affect you? Well, normally I would say it didn't affect me, but I feel like I'm getting emotional, so clearly it did. Um, I think, you know, you just, you go into automaton mode because you're there as a journalist, you're there to record and document this historic event and this historic scene, and so you've got a, a duty and a responsibility to do that. And I think, you know, almost all journalists would tell you they just go into auto mode. Um, and so I didn't feel like it affected me, but you know, clearly, uh, even after all these years later, it is a bit emotional to recall. Yeah. 88 Australians died in that bombing. Mm. As an Australian journalist, how, how, do you how do you deal with the stories coming out of that? Do you deal with it objectively or, I mean... Yeah, I think, yes, I think I always have been able to deal with it objectively and I think the vast majority of journalists do and can. I mean, it's possible to be a human and to be affected by something terrible and tragic like that, but still to be objective and be able to do your job, um, 
you know, thoroughly, um, persuasively, responsibly. And I think, you know, being human and having some compassion and caring about, you know, the fate of those people makes you a better journalist. Do you think most people would understand that, uh, how journalists can almost compartmentalise their professional uh, skills and then their personal feelings? I don't know. Mm. Or maybe surgeons do it at times mm. or other professions, but it, it's something about journalism, isn't yeah. it, about that? Well, yeah, I know. You know, journalists still don't like to admit they've been personally affected by something. Um, journalists still are reluctant to seek, you know, support or counselling. Um, things have changed a lot now since the work done by the Dart Centre and others. So, and I think media organisations are much more aware of the impact on journalists. But I think as a group, we're still inclined to want to tough it out and say, no, it, I'm not affected, I'm fine, you know. Um, it's just my job. But Very soon after, you heard the uh, leader of Jamia Islamiyah at a rally, I think, mm. uh, say, uh, between you and us, there will forever be a ravine of hate. Mm. And that had an impact on you? That so, had a big impact. What was he saying? That the on um, me. Christianity and... Yeah, he was talking about the infidels or non-believers yeah. and the Muslims. And he made that statement just from memory, a few hours or within a couple of days of the Bali bombing. No Can comment, you no comment. No comment, no You know, there was no stepping back by this guy. There was no expression of um, commiseration or, or, or sorrow for the victims. Um, you know, we now know he was fully in support of the bombing. Um, and so he was just stating this as a fact, that this is how it was and how it would always be. And it was that that really made me, that, it was that that prompted me to want to write a book on it because I really wanted to understand how the, that could be and what that ravine of hate was and why it was there. In your book and writing for The Australian, I, I get a sense that you really tried to understand the process of radicalisation. What did you learn? And, and it seems... Uh, uh, out-of-the-box kind of approach. Did you do that deliberately? Or? It was just that that was what fascinated me yeah. about these really ordinary people who had become either terrorists or terrorist sympathisers or fellow travellers. Um, you know, when you look at the Australians who got involved, people like Jack Thomas, the Melbourne taxi driver, David Hicks, Jack Roach, the big bearded guy in Perth, um, Mamdu Habib, um, you know, for the most part, Rabia Hutchinson, the woman who became um, known as, you know, the, the matriarch of radical Islam in Australia, for the most part, these are really average Aussie people, Aussie battlers even, kind of, you know, working middle class, nothing remarkable about their lives. Um, in fact, in relation to Rabia, I felt like, you know, we had a lot of similarities. She was not that much older than me. She'd grown up around the beaches as a young surfy chick, had been a bit of a rebel in her teens, had travelled the world to kind of, you know, find adventure and find herself. And I was just intrigued as to how these people ended up on the path that they were on. So that was what interested me most about the story. You better tell us a bit about Rabia. She's also been described as the Elizabeth Taylor of Jihad. Um, where did she end up? The start of her transition was that she became a Muslim in Indonesia. And then somehow she ended up on this trajectory whereby she ended up right in the very 
essentially in a circle of um, the Islamist militant movement uh, in Afghanistan. So she ended up married to a guy called Abu Walid al-Masri, who was a, a very senior uh, figure in the Islamist movement, um, very close to senior al-Qaeda figures. Um, she was previously married to the guy who was the head of Jamar Islamiyah in Australia. She was close to Abu Bakr Bashir in Indonesia. So um, she ended up literally right in that inner circle, which is an incredible, you know, life story for somebody who started off um, in the beach suburbs of Australia. So again, you know, what fascinated me about her was how on earth did she end up on this trajectory? Mm. And explaining that to the public, because, you know, people see these people like in terms of monsters yeah. and killers and yeah. so forth. They're usually, and I've spent quite a lot of time with some of these people, they're usually motivated by, you know, um, seemingly positive ends, you know. They, they see the all the positive sides of Islam, the, the, the you know, community-centred nature of it. Mm the piety, the, the, you know, the, the civil behaviour. Um, and, you know, it's, it's... What motivates them is that they believe that this ideology is, um, you know, the best and the most peaceful and one that, you know, benefits people. So, um, you know, none of them set out to be terrorists or even extremists, but... Um, you know, the ones who've got into strife are the ones who have ended up attaching themselves to the very extreme side of Islam. How long have you been in your position? I've been in my position for five years. This is my fifth year. Do you miss reporting? Um, I think some of our staff would tell you that I must miss reporting because I like getting my hands really dirty in people's <laughs> scripts and their stories. Yeah. Um, you know, I love storytelling. I love crafting a story. There's no better way than television for telling a story. It's harder because of all the logistic demands and the fact that you have to get people on camera and you can't use off the record sources, but um, I do love it all. And I miss it a little bit, but this job's pretty good. Hi, it's Bill Birnbauer, back with you. If you enjoyed that podcast and want to hear more interviews with top investigative journalists, Go to democracieswatchdogs.org and locate the podcasts tab. On the site, you can watch video interviews with all the journalists featured in these podcasts. You can subscribe to our podcast and also to our newsletter for alerts about forthcoming interviews and our latest news. And please help us produce more interviews by supporting our work. As a registered non-profit organisation, we depend entirely on your support. Just go to democracieswatchdogs.org, press the donate button and give us whatever you can afford. Every bit helps. It all goes into production and is greatly appreciated. Thanks for listening and bye for now.